0: Hello and welcome to Tickets, a podcast series exploring the future of live experiences. Each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the visionaries, producers and operators delivering some of the most vital and innovative experiences around, from Broadway theatre to international boxing, virtual reality to retail. Tickets aims to join the dots between disciplines, share knowledge and new ideas, and better understand what goes into bringing these experiences to life. My name's Howard Gray. I'm the founder of H-Bureau a specialist consultancy practice helping media, entertainment, and experience companies grow. On the guest list today are Will Prince and Charlie Marshall, principals at Park Office, a New York-based experience design practice. Blending digital technology with physical environments, Park's projects include Google's Cultural Institute, flagship store design for Adidas, reimagining Le Meridian Hotel in Istanbul, and creating a modern-day fashion museum for Gucci in Florence. Listen on for the duo's insights into the impact of Instagram, how they assess new technologies, how they customize experience for local audiences, and their tales of jet lag Parisian bar crawls. Enjoy. First off, could you introduce Park Office? explain maybe what you're about and also maybe what you're not we were talking just before we started recording about the the shades of gray around positioning and being in a kind of interesting space that maybe not everyone would instantly understand could you explain uh, what you are and what you're not i'll take the canned response i think our canned
1: response is we're an architecture and design firm with an emphasis on creative technologies now that's probably a very work over statement and probably it's probably the first time I've actually said it that way because I think it always it always gets described slightly differently because we occupy a little bit of a weird niche in our own profession where we are architects and industrial designers, but we primarily work in strategy and technology, which is a bit obtuse and a little bit sort of askew of the kind of and standard and spaces and spaces. What? Let's see, so how those relate to spaces? Right, yes. So the the big tie-in is we work in spaces and environments, um, but the relationship to architecture and design is more of a kind of strategic or technological sort of aspect.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that works. What are we not? Uh, We are not base building architects. We are not... We're not product designers. No. Uh, Mostly because we both have experience in that and don't want to do that anymore. Um, I have a history in industrial design um, and for a little bit of my life, create electronics products, in like proper actual engineering, mechanical engineering, industrial design. And I, there is a years of time and money in something that might not ever see the light of day. And I don't think that that interests us. And I think that base building architecture has the same thing. There's a huge amount of time and money and effort in making renders of beautiful things that might not ever happen. And I think that we have a desire to be in a world where we get to make stuff quicker, faster. Um, So that's why we err towards the end of the retail design, the experience design, the cultural design, those kinds of, bits of work where we chances are we're going to build something within a year within a year and a half and it'll be a real thing might be there for a week or it might be there for the rest of time but our desire is definitely to have something where we can go and kick the tires quite literally
0: so um how did all this start i know charlie we have a a shared um, home location of cornwall in the uk which for those listening who don't know where that is, is the, the the most southwesterly little part of England. I think it's the bit that's pretty closest to
2: America, actually. It, it is. <laughs> it yeah. probably is. Um, oh. Yeah, uh, Cornwall has, uh, I've described Cornwall to Americans as Maine, our sort of equivalent. And I went to college in Falmouth, which uh, is, there is a Falmouth in Massachusetts. And there's a reason why is because ships left right. from Falmouth in Cornwall and came to the east coast of America, and being as original as we are as Brits, we went, great, let's just call it Falmouth, <laughs> done. Uh, there's also a Falmouth in Jamaica for exactly the same reason. I didn't there's, know there's a Falmouth there, in Jamaica. There are three other Falmouths throughout the Caribbean, uh, which are basically get on a ship, leave Falmouth in Cornwall, arrive somewhere, just call it Falmouth. <laughs> uh, but um, I went to college there, I did 3D design, and... Uh, ooh, the broadest of terms, it was predominantly product design, um, industrial design and spatial design. Um, And I, cutting out a big chunk, uh, started working with Will when we were both at the Rockwell Group and a weird um, separate studio that was half owned by Coca-Cola and half owned by the Rockwell Group called Studio Red. Uh, And the people that ran the studio a guy called Craig Caneric, um with uh, Tucker Vmeister Meister and uh, Jason Hackett were a group of people that had come from running Razorfish and Tucker had set up Frog and Smart Design. So he had a history in sort of industrial design and uh, strategy design around that kind of stuff. Craig came from the uh, world of you know media, from running Razorfish, setting up Razorfish. And Rockwell Group was an architecture firm and they pulled together a weird mixed bag of kind of um, slightly type A people to work on odd Coca-Cola projects around the world. And that's where we worked together for a chunk of time. Then each went on both of our separate ways. And when we were had kind of had our fill of working for some quite large corporations and quite large agencies that we didn't enjoy that much, went out each on our own will set up park before i joined um and then he was working on a cultural project i was working on a cultural project at the same time like well why don't we just why don't we just work at the same place basically is how park came about
0: will did you know at rockwell that charlie was going to be your your partner in crime several years later or not. It's
2: interesting
1: because I met Charlie through a mutual friends over a beach house share. So I think it I think Charlie was just a good hang to begin. <laughs> I think I knew Charlie as a good hang before I knew him as like a good business partner or kind of even on a even on a sort of professional level. So
2: I know that during Rockwell or just after Rockwell, quite a few people had said to us, you guys should run a studio. And both of us said, we have no desire to run a studio, don't want to run a business again. Both of us had run businesses before and decided that that was a terrible idea. Um, so we both had that that aspect of saying, no way, that's insane. Why the hell would you want to be a business owner? And then Q2, 10 years later, turns out, actually. Well, not even 10 years later.
1: Yeah, it, was, yeah, it wasn't even 10 years later. It was interesting because it was... I don't think the goal was to go out and start an office. I think that... Somehow, projects just sort of materialized. Yeah, and projects, projects came at projects us. Projects came, uh, the calls coming in like, "Do you want to do this?" And it was a moment of like, "Well, sure. Why wouldn't I want to do that?" And then I was doing a museum project in Italy, and Charlie was doing a kind of strange technology museum in Paris. And that's when we
2: kind of just said, "Well, it makes sense to just do these together." Yeah. I need an architect who needed a tech person come person to drink wine with. Yeah. Uh,
0: so so other, other than doing a business together being a terrible idea <laughs> and needing someone to drink wine with, what, what were the kind of principles that Park started with at the beginning? What, were the, the, what was the catalyst for getting it going?
1: It's, so I think that, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit So, when we worked at Rockwell and we
0: were doing
1: projects for large brands, they had a tendency to be more strategic projects about experience so they were strategy that were with the idea of looking at what the experience of that brand should be on a kind of spatial or material level and i had come out of very like come straight out of grad school and gone to work for a big crazy architect and Rem cool house and we were starting we were setting up um AMO which was the sort of let's say the mirror image of OMA which was your big base building proper capital A architecture practice and AMO was essentially built to look at all of the things that that architecture practice didn't cover and all of the, the sort of cultural production that existed in and around architecture design and it really was look working with big brands on big strategic projects so there was a big component to the Prada stores that kind of exists in a lot of volumes of books which was looking at the cultural production of Prada and then how that made material manifest in the stores themselves, and continued for projects for IKEA and Heineken, and I think the desire was that there was so much, there were so many interesting things in that little sort of niche, that sort of side project to architecture and design, that kind of strategic side, that we wanted, that that I think the principle was to build a business around those components, Mm -hmm. because they were, They were faster. They were quicker. They, we felt like they had larger impact. It's fine to design a project or a building, but if we felt like we could sort of enact larger cultural impact by kind of working slightly on the periphery, I think that was the idea to begin with.
0: How's it evolved over the past nine years? Has that kind of principle stayed firm throughout, or has it shifted?
1: I think it always. I think everything shifts with markets. So everything kind of depends on where the market leans. so we went we were heavy cultural for the first few years then we were incredibly heavy hospitality and then we got heavy retail and now we're really heavy in i guess i would describe it in a kind of esque strategy format at this point like
2: it's it all kind of depends on where
1: the market is leaning
2: yeah and i think we've had the opportunity to work with some really big brands on some surprisingly big projects that we kind of punched quite a lot uh, you know, higher than our weight class, and it has a tendency to take over the studio for a while. And uh, we, if if we were doing this for the sake of it being a really Uh, you know great numbers business we would stay doing that one thing uh, and we would grow to a team of 50 and just do whatever that one thing is but we have a desire to make different and interesting things so we have a tendency to chop and change direction about every two years ish I mean, I'm not sure it's a, it's not always an
1: intentional.
2: No, it's not always an intentional
1: chop. It has a tendency to, I think that part of the reason we never wanted, part of the reason I never wanted to be a kind of standard base building sort of uh, core and shell architect was that that has a very specific characteristic, has very specific set of things you do every day. And we always wanted to kind of shift and change what we do. We always wanted some variation, and we always want a range of projects. And the great thing about places like OMA and Rockwell was the range that you could touch was dramatic. You could yeah. be designing a piece of furniture one day. You could be doing. It. You could be rethinking a physical presence for IKEA, kind of an enormous brand, or you could be building a a library that everyone's going to kind of catalog as one of the greatest buildings of the past hundred years so you had all this range and i think we we enjoyed that range we enjoyed having all of those kind of options and kind of stimulating different parts of the brain yeah absolutely so i think that's kind of where we've ended up where we've ended up and i think it also goes to a little bit of why we sometimes have trouble saying what we are and what we do um, and why that's probably that statement has been a probably a work in progress
2: for years Um, there was a Sizable chunk of time when people said, What do you do? and I would say, What do you want? Uh, I've also right.
0: been saying that. Right, I
2: think, and I, I, you know, as long as it's within the realms of design vaguely, there is a part of me which is like, Well, what do you, what do you got? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I think, think
0: positioning is a really interesting thing because, like you say, it, it shifts the market. And if you're in a services business, you want to be doing your own thing right. that you're passionate about, yes. but also your part part of your remit is to serve clients and clients needs change and the yeah. market changes so when people say what do you do it's hard to really give them a fixed answer because it depends who you, you know you work across a bunch of different industries yeah. it depends what the need is right
2: i think that there is part of it which is around i would say the chopping and changing on the two year thing is more of a part of a business owner's job is to go out and get new work and talk to people and and you know see what we're going to be doing next and I think that there is just a – I think we have a tendency that uh, that kind of mark to have a conversation between the two of us and say, you know what? We haven't done a hotel in a while. Like, what could we do with a hotel that would be more interesting now than we did last time? And Charlie's not
1: joking. That actually is a conversation right. that was had recently. It has been a while since we've done a hotel. And we're right. Kind of, and someone came into us last year with a hotel proposal that was like the thing that we would have given anything to do. Yeah. I think that one fell apart yeah, But we're hoping like s- for a revival of that. The one kind of, I would say there may be some kind of consistent things through the work. Because, again, we've described this practice that really kind of runs the gambit and does a lot of different things. But I think the two um, the two kind of red threads are there is a kind of technology integration, mm-hmm. um, interactive technology, responsive environment thread that runs throughout. And I think that's been consistent through 85 to 90% of the projects over the past like nine years and I think that almost always our projects and, and this is going to sound it's going to make sense to architects but maybe not make sense to other people that architecture has like phases so it's a concept design sorry schematic design design development construction documents and then you maybe you maybe someone will actually pay you to do concept design or strategic design on a phase um, <coughs> and for us, that has, for us, that strategic design, that concept design has been more where we lived and more consistency across our projects. So that normally we are, we get this question, and I think this has been for a lot of our clients is we've got this thing, what is it? What do we do with it? So that was our very first project, which was a museum for, which was the Gucci Museum in Florence, the Museum, Museo Gucci, was they had, there was a, Giant archive, very incomplete archive that needed to be infilled in a basement in Florence. And essentially, the mandate was: we've got this, we've got this great archive that needs—it's missing some pieces. But what do we do with this? It's sitting in this leaky basement in Florence, and we want to actually make use of it. And spent six months in that basement in Florence, working with the woman who's running the archive—a fantastic Sicilian woman named Margarita. Um, who and trying to figure out what we could do with it, and what long before it was ever going to be a museum, we spent a long period of time kind of really thinking through every possible option or variation on it. And I think a lot
2: of our work happens that way. That was a project that was kind of amazing because most cultural projects, like a museum, have a definite remit. We're going to build a museum. That's definitely what we're doing. We you know earmarked a load of cash. We have a plan and we have a thing that we want to show off. Working, I think the difference is working with a brand where money is a different kind of equation than with a cultural institution where money is always just such a colossal factor. The fact that Museo Gucci exists was because it was the right and interesting thing to do with the archive rather than because they wanted a museum um they were at the beginning up for let's just spread it around the world let's put bits of it in every store or do we take it on tour or do we put some of it into an exhibit that goes on tour or you know the fact that a museum came out of that kind of conversation is extraordinarily unlikely that the out that the outcome was a museum in a palazzo in the center of Florence like it's an insanely high output from a general broad question of like we've got a load of stuff in a basement what do we do with it
1: I mean and the project became using the archive as sort of an agipropt or a sort of way of looking at um, the overall cultural production of Gucci because what we the kind of determination we made through this project through the initial phase of this project was the Gucci was not the sum of its, let's say, material parts. It wasn't. It wasn't the sum of the bags and the shoes and the luggage. It that something it had like the way that brand had shifted in the '80s. The cultural production of Gucci was actually had to do with the ads and the videos and all of the sort of general media production too. So it so we kind of sculpted this entire project not from the but looking at the archive, the goods but also the kind of media so the museum really became this kind of encapsulation of what was the entire ethos of the brand. so the what so the how to drive the experience based on the kind of holistic viewpoint of the brand rather than necessarily the kind of goods in production. So that was um, that's kind of where this came from. So it started out as a museum project to begin with I don't know if we'd been ever able to get to that point right. I don't know if we would have ever sort of been able to like, sort of drive it that far in that direction to look at the entire cultural production of the brand itself uh,
0: what, what do you think is on clients minds now versus when you started out the kind of things they're wrestling with and the things they're thinking about whether it's, it was a Gucci project when you first started or, a, or one of your more recent pieces of work and how do, you, how do you think what they're thinking about is going to change in the next couple of years as well Instagram uh,
2: in all seriousness almost all retail and hospitality at some point in the meeting, somebody will say, right, but well, what's our Instagram moment? What's our Instagram thing? I
0: had a conversation with a, a, a founder of a travel company startup yesterday, and he, uh, I think at midnight that day, right. so 24 hours, just over 24 hours ago, uh, Instagram have announced they're pulling the basic API access. Right. So in two, I think it's in two years time because of the Cambridge Analytica fallout yeah. and everything else. And for him and other companies that are built on effectively on top of or are right. very reliant on Instagram, it's huge news for them. So I guess that to that end, their Instagram strategy is a massive part of
2: how they're thinking about things. A fundamental and colossal part of experience now is around the singular... uh, is around the capacity to show that you're having a good time. Uh, And I think it is something that, you know, unsurprisingly... When we first, when we were doing the Gucci Museum, when we were doing the Culture Institute in Paris, all of those kinds of things, there was no consideration to that at all. Company didn't, ex- Instagram didn't, exist, right? It didn't I exist. Guess. But also, the mentality was yeah. around: this is to make sure that you, the consumer, have an interesting experience, and you, the consumer, have a good time. Not whether you, the consumer, can show that you're having a good time and can show everyone else that you're having a, That it's an interesting place to go. Um, and so, I think that there is a shift in the manner in which there is certainly pandering to that to the point of it kind of getting annoying. You're like, are you putting this? Is your desire as a client to have this thing, whatever it is, or this this uh, this piece of design or this this moment within the experience about the quality of the experience for the user itself? Or is it purely a push? You know, it's a two—it's a two-handed thing. Uh, no one has to post that they had a great time. No one has to do any of that kind of stuff. But there is certainly that has become an, an integral part of what clients are demanding. It's it, if I pull out of that slightly, I, I think that some at least. So
1: that's much a little bit more on the hospitality side. Yeah, a little bit more on the retail side. That's a that's a portion of it, but it's not the entirety of it. Right. Because I think that on the retail side, it's much more been about collapsing the web, social, and physical into a singular into a singular space, and how you is true omni-channel possible? What, how could that evolve? What the, could that be? And then that definitely has social implications social media implications also. Yeah. And has a big, that's a big portion of what omnichannel means to retail these days. So I think it varies a little bit per client, but the mandates have the mandates have definitely shifted, especially when dealing with hospitality clients who are looking forward, are are looking, let's say, further down the road in the five and seven year terms, are looking at how they attract or how they work with. A consumer that is, I guess, a millennial consumer now, or a kind of Generation Z, and what they're doing to what they're doing to appeal to those consumers, and currently that has a tendency to be around the kind of idea of social media production or media production.
2: I yeah, I also think that the smarter clients are more interested in or understand um, the are learning and understanding better the pros and cons of a brick and mortar space of building a physical thing because I think that it, it the pendulum is sort of settling a bit there was the era of you've got to build the biggest the biggest mall or the biggest you know shopping center or the biggest store or any of that then there was a swing second round.com which is we don't need any kind of physical space at all everything's going to be online everything's going to be ordered through the web and i think that it's interesting to see that the older stalwarts in the brick and mortar space are understanding they need to get better but the more interesting one is seeing every single brand that from three years ago had a one hundred percent online strategy, no need to be in brick and mortar at all. Every single one of them going, you know what? People like actually seeing stuff and touching it.
1: And it's it's really interesting now, and I think that Everlane is such a strange example from something. This was a unfortunately a job we interviewed for and didn't get because I think I kinda, I think I can probably explain why we didn't get it because. What they went to was a very traditional brick and mortar retail. There's no technology overlay. There's no presence of the website in the store. The only presence of the website in the store is the ability, uh, is a little bit kind of tighter ability for the sales associates to yeah. be able to sort of interact with the web. So they have a so the back end of, inter, of Everlane is dramatically improved over through sort of the back end of most. Uh, kind of standard retailers that they can sort of access inventory but there's there's no technology in this at all so they went so heavily the opposite direction like it's it's like a a better version of a Gap store from like 1992 so it's a little bit strange so when we were pitching this we were pitching it much more as the full omni-channel version of it and what they did was the kind of most sort of like Luddite version possible of a store um I can't really explain that and it's they're they've got lines or at least there were lines outside the San Francisco version it's hard to explain oh how there are lines happened.
0: outside the New York one too yeah I can't See explain them. it at all like it's very sort of like strange um I think that's this area is really interesting there's two things I'm, that kind of come to mind one is that Travis Kalanick the Uber founder CEO former yeah. um his new investment fund is called uh, 10100 I think it is the, the numbers um and he's focusing on distressed real estate, so all the retail and parking uh, space that's going to come back onto the market and repurposing that. I think he's starting with kitchens and retail. Right. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is there's a guy called Scott Belsky who founded uh, Behance, the uh-huh. designer yeah. network portfolio network, and he's now at Adobe. He wrote a blog post last week about uh, called Attack of the Micro Brands, I think it is, which is all the kind of digital native mm-hmm. brands on, on, funnily enough, on Instagram. Mainly, you know, fashion, yeah. apparel, e-commerce stuff. Right, right. It's a really interesting post. Uh, anyone who's listening, worth checking it out. Um, I'd be really interested to get your take on, for, for one, a brand like this, who maybe some of them are constrained by budget, some of them maybe not so. What recommendations do you have if they're, if they're looking to get into bricks and mortar or not? How, what, how should they start
2: thinking about this? And how should they think about spatial design experience? I think there's a couple of things around the desire. Is the desire to actually sell at retail um, or is the desire more to be able to showcase product? And I think those are two very different strategies. If your desire is to sell at retail, don't try and reinvent the wheel. Go and make a really nice shopping shop somewhere. Like don't own the brick and mortar yourself, get a consignment and, you know, be present somewhere if it's around an experience of touching and feeling a product then it should be tailored that way to the experience of it with the capacity to have retail within it because I think there is a missed trick in brands that open a you know who are predominantly an online brand who open some form of experience retail but you can't buy anything there and it drives people insane you know it doesn't need to be a high volume location but the you have to build in the capacity for somebody to be able to buy something and walk away with it which i think is one that keeps on coming up i keep on seeing things where like come and experience the new blank thing pop-up store and you're like great can i buy one now and they're like oh no you have to order it online and wait x number of days for it to arrive i'm like well in which case you have annoyed me more than you've intrigued me. So I think there are probably there were multiple. I think you were hinting there's, there are probably multiple strategies
1: depending on the scale that someone is working at. Yeah, and I think that spending two years working with Adidas, thinking through every version of their retail, I think that there were there were definitely levels to that. When it was a kind of standard Adidas shop, um, there, the motivations and goals were to get as much product in front of the consumer as possible and have as much product consumer facing and be able to kind of constantly shift to the new, to always kind of be able to kind of have a zone where you focused on what the new thing was and it had kind of the changeability of it. When you kind of dealt with the larger scale of the Adidas flagships, those needed to be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So those needed to function on multiple levels from the athlete to the expert to the novice to just this, to the sneaker head, to the kind of random consumer. So they needed to have, so you needed to kind of map the proper consumer experience and kind of really think through what the role of the associate, what the role of the architect, what the role of the space was to each of those kind of levels. And that's that was really the amount of time thinking through that. And also part of the procedure for Adidas was to really kind of try to localize each flagship, that each flagship, as opposed to Nike, which has a very traditional set of flagships that look the same and act the same. And then what they do is an enormous amount of pop-ups that focus on new, splashy, vibrant, that look very different. That was not within the kind of Adidas strategy or plan. So the idea was that the flagship swords would be localized and have environments or kind of zones within each sword that would change on a regular basis, that, that would change to local events that would be the New York Marathon once and then would be the US Open and would constantly shift the events happening in the area. So I think there's a there's a kind of catering to on a scale level. Coming back to the Everlane thing, that's, that's the one I don't quite understand. I would have never thought the sort of retro version of retail would have generated so much for them. But maybe that isn't what you were pointing out. Maybe that's around the fact that with Everlane, the kind of The difficulty was understanding what the product was and feeling the product and touching the product, that it is a very low price point. It's a very kind of standard and uniform product. So the ability to kind of touch that must generate, must actually have a kind of reciprocal effect to online sales and kind of consumer loyalty through that. Yeah. And the other thing, the other one I was gonna say is, we worked for gap companies to kind of do an experimental store after they had acquired Intermix, so we would gotten this little sliver of space next to the big Intermix store of our meatpacking, and were asked to look at something that could have no product, um, could be used for a launch, could be fully kitted out with product, and had a digital overlay. So it was, it was something that for them for Intermix has generated an enormous amount of both press and pull both on a social media level and an influencer level and a kind of general consumer level that's been kind of incredible so there's one this will be the one anecdote i will say about that space is that there are two very long walls that are entirely projection mapped so if you want to there's a 23 foot by 10 foot nine inch wall that you can entirely projection map with whatever intermix con- whatever intermix wants to kind of push from headquarters and there's a wall in the back that is directly parallel to the facade that is almost identical shape to the facade that you can see through and that's also a projection map and it is 10 foot by 10 foot 9 a kind of big billboard almost style that this store changes on a regular basis so it it turns a minimum of four times a year Most often it turns. most years it turns. it changes entirely what the product makes more than that. When they have done a store changeover and that wall, and that projection is not on, um, foot traffic decreases by half to less than half. So just the fact that there is movement, there is media, there is light, there's something happening in that store. Don't have the immediate sales projection numbers, but I knew the foot traffic numbers jump dramatically. And it is a mid-block section of Washington Street, so it needs some, a little bit of... And also has a city-black rack blocking it. So it needed that ability to kind
0: of wrap consumers in, bring consumers in and through. Uh, I think that ties in really well into something else I wanted to ask you about around tech. So you said digital and technology more broadly is kind mm. of a, one of those key threads that, around the principles of park office. Um, when it comes to kind of assessing trends and innovations in technology how, how do you assess what what's worth focusing on what's a fad what's not how how do you go about fi- I mean, it's, it's difficult how do you go about figuring that out and also uh, interweaving that in the more kind of traditional spatial design work that you're doing
2: uh first up go straight to your Geithner curve um which is uh you have to explain uh, what that is so there is uh the Geithner curve Geithner curve Geithner projection I can never remember quite what it's called it's Geithner projection Geithner, Geithner. 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 either way I'll say it again. Great. Um, Is uh, a projection of uh, current technology, new technology, uh, and it has a few beautiful terms. Uh, There is the hype curve, which is the beginning part, which is basically and this group, it's a research group. Uh, plots different pieces of technology on whereabouts it is on this curve. There is the trough of disillusionment, which is also an extraordinary term. Um, we've all we've all been there at some point, I think. right? Yeah. And and then there is uh, then so there's basically a large curve that drops into this this trough, and then it's there's a slow climb out on the other side. And basically, all current technology is plotted across this, and it's a good gut check to see where people are, and you can and you can feel that. I think. You know, you take any current piece of technology. uh, There is definitely a hype curve. There was Internet of Things. Internet of Things is going to solve everything for everyone. All things are going to be amazing and superb. Then a load of people got an IoT device in their house or an IoT lock on their front door or whatever it was or their fridge was IoT or their juicer or whatever. And then people went, oh, no. It's just a shitty lock that now if I if my phone runs out of battery, I can't get into my damn house. Like, this is insane. Then there's this trough of sort of disillusionment where everyone hates stuff. I think quite a lot of IoT really hanging devices right there right now. are in that kind of patch at the moment. And then there is this sort of adoption climb where people just accept. So smartphones. People just accept that they work, that they're good, that, they, that they're useful. There isn't this hype around a phone anymore like it how many phones are released each year i'm gonna say a couple of hundred of smartphone capability no one cares no one cares in the blindest anymore okay apple gets some bump on theirs because sure they're really good at it but how many android devices were released this year and do you know about or care about any of them none but they're all amazing pieces of extraordinarily well-engineered technology that are microscopic and you carry around in your pocket it's a bonkers piece of technology but we've just become used to it and accept it and um, we used to have this conversation with friends who used to run a company called Berg if you know Berg, uh, and their particular place of interest within the curve was right in that trough of disillusionment because it was a piece of technology that sort of got through the hump of the media and the press and all the rest of it. Chances are it's within the realms of price that's interesting. Uh, you know, when things start to become really cheap, like ludicrously cheap, like you can buy an Android cell phone, you can buy one outright for like 60 bucks. Uh, you can buy a tablet for $10 now in China. You know, a, a that works. Um, and there is something interesting around being able to make interesting pieces of technology or, you know, there was an era where, say, in a cultural center or a museum and you wanted to give out iPads, people would have been like, that's insane. You know, that's just millions of dollars worth of money and the risk against that and all the rest of it. Well, when it is a, if you're buying them in bulk, seven dollars iPad equivalent is cheaper than the damn headphone things that they always had. so take somebody's credit card, charge them seven bucks and just give them one. It's a terrible use of a disposable piece of electronics, but it's not as if it's the it doesn't have the risk that it used to have working with technology. So there's something on the hype curve that I'm super interested in the I'll, I'm always tempted. I think we're always tempted by bits on that, on the rising bit. So, you know, there's nanotechnology, and the, you, you know, which is real. Um, there are super interesting bits of that curve. Um, but in a way, to convince clients to use things, they always want to use them at the peak of the hype curve. And that's the exact moment where you're like, please, please let us not do that.
0: I really like the idea of sitting at the the trough of disillusionment. So it's- sitting at that point where, it's a, where things are about to then move again, mm-hmm. I d- I've realized that I always wanted to think I was an early adopter. I'm now very proud that I'm not yeah. and I'm happy to be in the kind of early majority just right. at the beginning of the yes. early majority. And I think, yeah, the idea of your friend sitting at the, the bottom of the trough waiting for things to then kick back up again is quite an interesting strategy.
2: Well, it, it's a little space where no one is going to um, sort of hyper-analyze what you're doing people right now working in the $5 or $10 iPad space no no one cares so there's an awful lot of space to do something really interesting whereas if any if another person comes with you know a like magic leap equivalent mm. bullshit vaporware thing they're billions on something that is f- frankly bullshit at the moment and i know a lot of people are working there and i know they're making some interesting things in theory but there is a capacity for technology companies to raise ungodly amounts of money on the on what we you know as somebody who worked in the in the technology space good old fashioned vaporware it's smoke and mirrors so i get annoyed by that I think the equivalent in the product design world is anyone who went to product design school or design school who had to actually build things like, you know, with a hammer and a saw and, you know, some epoxy and all of that stuff, that there is a generation that can get through college by purely rendering things. And you ask people to do things and they're like, well, how would you do that? I'm like, I don't know. It's your product. How would you do it? There is a technology version where people just say, well, we'll figure, like, that's not the issue. I'm like, well, it kind of is the issue that... You are claiming massive, extraordinary, uh, incredible things. And yet the resultant outcome, Google Glass is a classic, which is something that... We did our turn on that. We did our turn on that. Uh, <laughs> At the
1: latter stages, trying to sort of like brainstorm through what it could be used
2: for, what it could be. Right. And it was very interesting because our ideas were, were really dull but that's a good use of a piece of technology that's frankly really dull. It's not, you know, at that time, Google Glass was a thing that was hated because it was in the hands of a group of people who were disproportionately rich in, in neighborhoods that people had felt gentrified out of, etc., etc. There were a load of social and cultural issues why Google Glass didn't work. It wasn't particularly because the technology didn't work. The technology was fine. It's just the fact that it was being pushed as this sort of extraordinary experience when in actual fact it was a very practical experience.
1: I really regret we never did your idea which was about six years ago Charlie wanted to make fake Google Glass and just hand them out to people. So he wanted to just have a, open up a box in Union Square and just like hand out Google Glass. So it became so just to kind of just test the became idea it's of like a- how much of an asshole you would look like if you were just walking around with fake google glass on just like to see what the kind of adopt, what the
2: kind of general perception right. would be the placebo effect yeah. yes exactly if you could <laughs> if, <laughs> if you could lower the instantaneous mm. you must be a douche because you have it on your face quotient then it can then become more of a normal thing and then you can do some more normal things with it, it you know you can basically push it into that you know trough of disillusionment you know and the interesting thing that came out of all of the recent stuff about Google Glass is the very thing that a group of people that Google quietly went and did was did some really boring shit with it, but really boring and useful shit, which was work in factories, uh, which are very uh, complex mechanical factory processes, with making ultra-customized, really expensive things like Boeing uses them. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Massey Ferguson, but that's the only tractor company I can think of. What's the the, uh, the, the other big American one? John not Deere. Pat, John, John Deere. Deere. Yeah. Uh, because, you know... Uh, I thought uh, they just made trucker caps. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they make million-dollar pieces of... You know, a yeah. combine harvester these days is a million, million and a half bucks. And you can mm-hmm. specify every single component on it, which means that some people have to build it. But the very next one going down the line, it's not like, uh, you know, Ford Fusion, where it's a different color and there might be a bit of different trim. These are fundamentally different, really complex pieces of machinery. And Google Glass quietly went and made an Enterprise one, which helps people know which components and what the layout of this particular tractor or combine harvest is going to be. And it's amazingly successful in a really boring space. And part of, me, part of me find that fascinating, like, there you go, you've actually found the useful thing for it, except the useful thing of it is a thing that you don't want it to be. Google wanted it to be cool and trendy and hip, and they wanted to be at the cutting edge of, you know, like hyper interesting technology. And what they made was a really useful wrench yeah, it okay. feels like they almost missed a, missed the trick with kind of customer discovery
0: to an extent, or almost putting their own assumptions and putting the solution before the problem, as it were. With that. Absolutely. Um, on that on that note, actually, I want <laughs> maybe you've just answered this, but what assumptions have you guys made about a, a project, technology, or an idea that that proved out to be wrong? And maybe what which failures have you had that you've learned you've learned from? Maybe Google Glass is the one with that project. Is there anything else that comes to mind? It's really strange.
1: We spent so much time, again, we were talking about this before, like 2013 for us was spent on an off-site warehouse in Mountain View, making stuff that we didn't know existed prior to being offered the work. So yep. We spent so much time working on these things that were, let's say, moonshot-esque things on a Google side. Yeah, it's Google X.
2: Yeah, a lot of
1: like Google X or Google ATAP or projects that I think that probably none of them really worked out. One of the things we worked on, Tesla eventually did um, and made work. So I think that we've seen a lot of things that were abject failure, not abject failures, but failures to market, but then produced something beyond that.
2: Yeah, I think there is... With all of that Google work that we did for a chunk of time, so we our, our history with Google is that we basically did a bunch of spaces for them with um, with interactive technology inside, sort of showrooms of web technology in physical spaces. Uh, some of that comes from my previous position uh, at the lab at Rockwell Group back in the day, which was a technology group within Rockwell Group that I left uh and got asked to join Google for a little chunk of time. Uh, So I was a quasi, I am a quasi-Zoogler, which only a certain number of people will understand as a phrase. Um, uh, That We then got invited by some people at Mountain View to work on all of these, working on the kind of spatial and product components within a bunch of Google X projects. I think the biggest learning from that is that technology companies will go, will spend more money. They will give you a budget which is vastly more than anyone else when they will still cut the project without a second thought. I think that that was something that was really interesting for us to learn and interesting to see where we put faith in a project continuing because people were spending so much damn money on it. You're like, well, they've got to be serious about this because they're spending all of this money. But they just had more money to blow on things and had more of a an attitude to being okay with blowing money on things that it gave you a false sense of security that the project was going forwards in a way that it we were, un, unbeknownst to us, it wasn't. And the interesting thing of that is figuring out whether it didn't go forwards because the product wasn't right or it didn't go right because the sales, the internal sales sort of positioning wasn't right. And I think that there are an awful lot of projects that we've worked on that have been shut down where I don't know that it was that the product wasn't right. It was that the way in which it was explained to people who have three minutes and will decide whether or not to spend another five million bucks on it or not, it didn't hit the mark. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're like, nah, we're done. Which had really big effects on the way that we considered working with those guys again. You know, there was just this thing of like, we are in the, we're interested in building things and if your decision-making process is so seeming to us, if your builder, if your decision-making process is so uh, arbitrary and somewhat swift, then we are more interested in working on projects that have a slower, more steady, is this going the right way or is this not going the right way kind of burn, if that makes any sense at all. That makes
0: sense. It's, it's quite interesting what you say, but I think there's a, an interesting area that I've kind of stumbled into somewhat around I guess probably storytelling to an extent but kind of product marketing as well in, internally within companies so a lot in bigger companies I think there's a lot of people who are coming up with new ideas and one of their biggest challenges is how do I sell this in or communicate it or get people to understand it or pitch it correctly and it's not really about a sell it's more just explaining benefits and features and all of that kind of stuff in a, in a kind of uh, coherent and succinct way to people who are very short on time and I feel like that that's still a a challenge for a lot of businesses
2: absolutely and the the feeling of, of whether or not it is a real problem to solve or a real outcome from a project that i that kind of goes off on a weird tangent around the sort of um what's the right word the uh provenance of a project like does it start with real intentions or with a very cynical intention not 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 that cynical sounds mean or rude and i i think there are still you know general business reasons to do a, lot, a load of projects but i think some things start without any real consideration of what the foundation of a project should be so when they're tr- when people are trying to explain it or try and sell it there's not much meat to actually go on. If you go, there's nowhere to go for a drink around here. We should make a place where people can go for a drink. It's quite an easy, you know, so let's find a space. Let's put a capacity to have a drink in there. Done. There we go. Problem solved. Whereas an awful lot of the technology world that we sometimes come up against is a as an unreal need. And there's no, its no surprise when everyone looks sort of unconvinced that any of this is really worthwhile. And that's tricky because there are an awful lot of people working hard on a project. Um, when you step into something and think, well, this is never going to go anywhere. It always feels as if you, it feels hard to put your heart and soul into a project that from the outset feels as if it was, Made up by somebody trying to uh, placate a CEO who said, We need that thing. And everyone goes, Okay. Like, oh, okay. I don't know why, but in my head, I keep thinking
1: about the IoT crockpot as like <laughs> the most sort of ridiculous, ludicrous thing that someone convinced someone to actually build. Because what, how, what are you even affecting? Like, how does that, like, it again, I think IoT is a, a significant pain point for us. Yeah. IOT and, um, let's say sort of the protocols that you can connect different types of technology to, um, there being so many versions of different sort of protocols by which things communicate with each other, it drives us bananas because
2: those are our two, those are two very personal pain points for us in our work. Um. And, you know, the, to touch very briefly on my like ten minute official rant, which I have in a in a in a presentation format, which I can provide to anyone. I think it's like uh, an hour. On yeah, iOS. <laughs> uh, the the main part is ten minutes. Is that an that the desire of companies who have no business to be in technology, thinking that hiring three computer scientists out of college will help? You know, I it would not surprise me. There is a superb pencil company in New Jersey. They make really nice pencils. I'm sure someone somewhere has said, we should have an app. We need an app. We definitely need an IoT device as well. What about the internet of things connected? Pencil knows when you've run out of pencil, gets you a new pencil. You're like, yeah, but is it worth them time and money? And chances are an awful lot of companies that rely on third parties to help build IoT devices are the most terrifyingly unsecure. The more I become, you know, I started out as a furniture designer and then ended up working at Microsoft for a while. So that's a weird, it's a weird route through. And the more I learn about the real hardcore back end of technology systems that are being pushed around the world, the more I become somebody that wants to live in a hut with a tinfoil hat, which is really annoying when you go, ah, oh, they were right. They were They weren't right because they were... Knowledgeable, they're mad people who, you know, live with tinfoil hats. It just happens to be that all of these things around you shouldn't have any devices in your house that are connected to the internet because they're unsafe is true, mostly because people are lazy and cheap. And, you know, a baby bear you know, soft plushy toy that can look at your kids and make sure that it's the kids are fine with the, you know, those nanny cams. Also, you just on an open IP that right. anyone can tap into. And if I also, I, also I
0: watched an episode of Black Mirror last night, which is kind of on that
2: <laughs> I can't watch Black Mirror. I cannot I can't watch, watch it. I can't watch, I can't watch, I can't watch Silicon it. Valley. I can't watch oh, Black God. Mirror. Silicon Valley is way too real for me. Yeah, it's too, it's too
1: close, <laughs> it's right? It's
2: so terrifyingly close to the reality of, like, yeah. Yeah, of course that's real. It's not, you know, anyone with the knowledge of that is either lying to themselves or being disingenuous to the world. Um, we're re- <laughs> we're, 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 I agree. I feel like we could, we could probably do another podcast just on that. Uh,
0: we've, we're really short on time, which is frustrating. Um, there's a bunch of stuff we could get into. Um, one, one thing I was really interested to, to ask you about, we've talked a lot about retail and tech particularly, uh, a little bit about cultural spaces too. Um, what have you guys learned from working in the hospitality industry? What are the commonalities between the other areas you work in and maybe what are the differences with your hospitality projects?
1: It's really interesting because I feel like we had such a background in hospitality work a little bit prior to the retail work. So that I think that the way a consumer, the way that you're bringing a consumer through, the way you're bringing a customer through hospitality projects, you have to really think about each of the touch points Uh, so clearly that I think that that strategically has informed a lot of the kind of way basically consumer journey and consumer strategy for the retail projects kind of really kind of being elaborate and considered about each of the kind of touch points which is I think really kind of what
2: we learn through hospitality. For me it's the hospitality and it's um, sort of a symbiotic relationship with service and the idea of service. A lot of my friends, a lot of our friends, are people that run restaurants, people that run hotels, bartenders, bar managers, uh, chefs. That that crowd is. Uh, it's an industry that is based around, or the 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 best end of of the industry is based on giving people a a superb experience, giving people a great time, making them feel better, making them have an experience that is unique and personalized and the cues from how good service is done and how that can tie into the best of retail and the best of cultural spaces. Um, You know, I think there is a huge... People should be learning more from good waiters and good bartenders and good restaurant managers about how to read a room how to read people how to give them the experience they want and i hope that what we can provide is spaces that allow humans to do the best they can with um, giving people great experiences also providing tools for them and for guests to create uh you know to have that that combination of a space that's inviting and interesting and uh, it elicits a level of curiosity and fun, it allows mm-hmm. technology to okay. enable experiences that uh, you know that that give people all of those mm-hmm. um, those facets, but also makes sure that the human portion is there. That. I think that was one of the biggest things for us for retail is understanding that taking cues from the very best of retail from 50, 70 years ago is about a human touch, is about you know, people don't, buying a suit, wouldn't you prefer to go and talk to a tailor and be measured correctly and spend a little time and have these sort of Revenance around uh, that experience, and how do you bring an element of that into, you know, high street retail? How do you bring an element of that personal touch of someone wanting you to have the best, wanting you to have a really great experience? So I think service is the, the service industry as part of the hospitality industry is the most direct, day to day experience that people have with another human that they don't know you know going to a coffee shop going to a bar going to a restaurant going to somewhere that's the you're more likely to have a one-to-one interaction with someone in those spaces um than as a person that you don't know personally and that how that person's attitude and that person's capacity to be good at service can affect your day needs to be taken on by every single call center company every single you know high street retailer this is going to sound a little strange but for
1: an architecture and design firm to be saying this but when we were working on the strategy for the US flagship store there was a large portion of that that was working through an hr strategy it was working through what the profile of the associates was actually going to be and really kind of Thinking through and kind of making some changes on how they actually hire for those positions and hire for those stores. So, yeah, that circles back to what do we actually do in the end? And <laughs> we're actually sitting there with a client talking through their hiring strategies yeah. for their associates for those spaces I really
0: like that as a kind of for any kind of guiding principle or north star for a biz- for a business. If you're in the service business and that your customer service people could could be the the main interaction someone has with a stranger in a day, that's kind of as to deliver that service and experience for them to a high level, that that's a great North Star for any service business, right? And, if you think about it in those terms.
2: And and how many, I mean, New York is the king of the horrendously shitty dive bar, hmm. I think. I uh, no, know, Detroit's pretty awesome. Yeah, this... You know, but I think America has, uh, you know, one of the things I love about the US is the shitty dive bar. But the shitty dive bar that has amazing staff does bucket loads of money. Because it's about an experience. Yep. The space is crap, but you it's part of the experience. So in that way, it's superb. You want it to be crap. But the, a dive bar with shitty stuff is horrendous. It's a terrible experience. It's awful. You will forgive a place smelling like pee with bad drinks and a broken jukebox if the experience that you have with those those service stuff in that space is fant- is phenomenal so all you know we can build the nicest prettiest most beautiful retail stores but if a one-to-one interaction with a human there is bad doesn't matter how nice our place is people aren't going back
0: uh, this might tie into my last question. Maybe you've given yourself away. Um, for each of you, what's been one of the most memorable live experiences you've had either either via your work or personally? I'm, I'm, maybe it's a dive bar, Charlie, in your case. I don't know. Are there, is there anything that particularly comes to mind?
2: Oh, uh, mine will be a dinner I had uh, with... Uh, I went away to Paris with my sister... Uh, my best friend and my dad when I was about 10 years old and we were going to Park Asterix which is very specific Um, and the night before going to Park Asterix we went and had dinner at the Trocadero which is the building where the, uh, uh, the African Art Museum is and the Maritime Museum is basically up the hill and with a direct shot down the gardens from the Eiffel Tower and the there was the restaurant there, there was a terrace restaurant. We had dinner there. And as the sun set, the crate, they just put the sort of bonkers, um, uh, epilepsy inducing flashing lights all over the Eiffel Tower and they went off. And it was extraordinary. It was an experience that was about being in a certain place at a certain time. And it is one of the most memorable sort of s- sudden live experiences of my life and i remember, i talked to my dad about this about a year and a half or two years ago and i said i still remember that meal we've been for many other meals around you know i got to travel a lot as a kid and i'm hugely grateful to my parents for it um but that one particular moment stuck with me so much and he said good because that was one of the most expensive <laughs> meals you've ever had in your life it was like <laughs> oh fair <laughs> enough but that, it, you know, it was whatever it was, four minutes of the flashing lights and then, you know, the sun setting behind it. But that's, that's my one. It's interesting.
1: I, I probably have, I am very guilty of recency bias. So um, I'll give two. I think that the, it was T Magazine had this dinner series that they were hosting with artists. They would select an artist and then I think Stella Artois was like supporting it. But they would be these kind of dinners they would host in like a a weird warehouse or a gallery space. And the artist would do some amazing table setting. And there was a Dutch artist who is your old roommate. is a friend of your old roommate who I can't remember her name to save my life right now. The artist, yeah, Alicia's friend, uh, was a Dutch artist who had done these kind of crazy sort of like uh, these sort of strange. It was a ribbon that draped around the table. So the ribbon hit the perimeter of the table. So you kind of had to, you had to kind of exist in the ribbon while eating. And it, and you were sitting on, it was just a really kind of amazing, kind of unique design experience. And T Magazine had like, you know, a set of five of those. It was kind of incredible. And the other one I'll give is, it has a little bit of a story behind it, why it happened. But it was, we were starting to do work uh, for an owner of the W. Paris Opera, who was a Spanish guy, uh, really a Spanish businessman, really kind of amazing character. And we were renovating the restaurants and bars in the W. Paris Opera. And we had presented some stuff to him, and he was like, well, what's your favorite uh, bar in Paris? And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, well, it's been a while since I... He's like, you haven't been out in... He's like, why? Like, you have to go to Paris tonight. I was like, okay. I was in Barcelona, so it was fine. So literally, we had to sort of book plane tickets to get us to Paris that night. I needed to be back for other meetings. So I had like literally 24 hours, I think less than 24 hours in Paris. So I think it was 12 hours. So we got there at 9 p.m. Um, and then kind of the concierge at the w. Paris Opera, W. Paris Opera had set up these kind of like all these kind of places we had to go and it was like a it was like plotting a course for like the next six hours. But I about halfway through at like two in the morning we ended up in a uh, silencio, which is the David Lynch like Victor Hugo's like printing former printing press room, which is like five stories below the Paris streets. And then you're going down this winding stairwell and there's like kind of an amazing Iway way exhibit in the stairwell and you're kind of going down into this like insane space that can't believe it really exists and sort of i'm kind of jet lagged drunk. <laughs> like everything is sort of foggy and it's just like the most amazing kind of like weird experience in this tiny little space that had all these kind of like subspaces you had to kind of slip into and then going from that to Montana, which was on the other side of the Seine, which is the weird place where they have to look through, look at you through a one-way glass to decide if you can go in. And then going in Montana, and then discovering all of a sudden there's a subspace to Montana where there's a crazy party going on. And it was just the I think it had to do with being intoxicated and jet lagged and been, and and had been like in three different European cities like for business that same period of time. So it has this kind of memory of this kind of sequence of things that was just phenomenal. Uh, anyway, that's my two.
0: Amazing. Um, we're out of time. Unfortunately, I wish we could keep chatting. Um, but we can get some, I can get some bar tips from you oh, afterwards. Definitely. <laughs> plenty, plenty of bar tips. Yeah. Um, yeah. Guys, it's been a pleasure to chat. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure.
0: Join us next time for another edition of Tickets. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or listen back through SoundCloud and Acast. Tickets is an HBO production. Find out more at hbro.com.